The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We are looking at Romans chapter 8. You heard it read this morning, chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. This is, in your, in your bulletin, there's a little outline. There's just three things on it, if you'd take a look at that, please. And um, the first is, this is, uh, I changed the title of this song. I mean, I changed the title of this sermon, <laughs> rather. It, it was something like, why is God doing this? And now it's uh, from groans to glory, because that's what it's about. We see some groaning in here by the whole creation, by we ourselves, believers, the church, and also by the, the spirit who groans as well. And uh, he starts off this way. Listen to that with these words again from verse 18. For I consider, this is the same word, by the way, that Paul uses back in chapter 6 when he says, Know you not that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death and burial and resurrection. And then he said, uh, so he said, you need to know this. And then you need to reckon it to be true. And it's the same word. This word consider is just the word reckon. And it means that you count this to be true. For I, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that tells you something. It tells you that we are in a time of suffering. We're in a time where we still experience suffering during these days. Uh, that's the reason when I, w- I started to title it, what, what is God, why is God doing this? Why is he allowing him to go through such difficult times? And why is there so much groaning going on? And if you notice in verse, let's see if I can catch this. In verse uh, 22, he says the whole creation groans. In verse 23, he says, we ourselves, that is believers, the church, we groan. And in verse 26, the spirit himself groans with, and he, he says in that passage that we don't know how to pray as we ought. I was, I, when I ran into that again, I was thinking about this. Can you imagine putting that on an application that you were going to go serve in some ministry? And they said, what's your prayer life? And you said, I don't know how to pray as I ought. But that's what he says about all of us. It's an infirmity we have. The, the word here is a, a weakness or an infirmity, something that we have a need for. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. Haven't you found that to be true? There are certain times you just don't know exactly what you should ask for. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, the, word, the idea of groanings is, is expressing our disappointment, our pain, and things like that. And so here the Holy Spirit is saying, that, that, that there are things in our lives that he's groaning about. He wants them to change. This isn't simply saying, you know, they're not, they're not like they should be. They're still, they're still messing up too much. Would you please? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that we experience sufferings at the present, present time. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's a little book that was written by a guy named Plantinga, uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., and remember that. He... Uh, he wrote a little book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's, a, it's, it's actually about sin. And he's saying we live in a time now, during this period of time, when things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the, there's a word in Hebrew called shalom. Most of you know this. Probably the most best-known word in Hebrew, shalom. Uh, and the first thing we learned, the first expression I learned taking Hebrew was shalom laka, which means peace to you. <laughs> And, uh, but, but what peace is, is peace is when things are the way they're supposed to be. When we have shalom, 
which is described as the condition we're going to enter into when we come into his presence, is things are going to be the way they're supposed to be. Isn't that great? Don't think so? I, I love that truth because sometimes I want to, every time I get a word of criticism, I want to say to the person, uh, shalom laka, shalom to you, peace to you. You know, I realize things are not the way they're supposed to be, but it's not. It's true for all of us, isn't it? Nobody has arrived. I don't know if you notice that when you look around the room, you can tell nobody's arrived. Nobody has been glorified yet. And yet in this same passage, we're going to be told, as you heard it read, he said that uh, these, these things that happened to us, he, he's going to mention, uh, he's going to use uh, five different words to describe what's happened to us when we came to faith in Christ. And uh, those things are wonderful things, are things that God has done, but he's not finished with us yet. And all you ladies should say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's not finished with us yet. He's still working on us. He's still accomplishing his good work in our lives because he's conforming us into the image of Christ. Well, what Paul is saying is we live in a time of suffering. We live in a time when there's a lot of groaning. And we should be aware of that. We should, in your little handout, you can see there, in the first section, in verses 18 through 21, he tells us that the sufferings of this present day have a glorious purpose. Because he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Isn't that wonderful? Or to us. We're going to see the glory of God up close and personal. There's a wonderful change coming. And then in verse 23, he says, we ourselves groan. We feel the, our needs. We feel the, the truth about we're not, as, we're not like we should be. You've, you've noticed that, haven't you? I know that it's, it's easier to see that in somebody else. Uh, that they're not the way they're supposed to be. But the fact is, none of us are. Um, I got a letter here. That, or it was actually a statement that John MacArthur made. He included in a book he read. He was preaching through 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is a book that talks about how needy we are. We're just clay pots. In fact, we're actually cracked pots. We, we are broken. And yet God manifests his mighty glory through cracked pots. You can see through the cracks. It's wonderful that God loves us the way he does. And so MacArthur is, in writing this, this article, he, he comments to this. This is to his people at his church where he pastors. He says, uh, this is in, in regard to 2 Corinthians 4. He says, if you want to be used mightily by God, get yourselves out of it. Learn to see yourself as a garbage pail. <laughs> or in the words of Peter, clothe yourself with humility. It's not you. It's not your personality. He's talking to preachers. And we're much more prone to think that it, think the things that he's confronting them about. He said, it's not you. It's not your personality. It's the word of God. He doesn't need the intellectuals. He doesn't need great people, fancy people, famous people, because the people aren't the power. The power is the message. It's the message itself. It's not the messenger that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. He's quoting the Bible there. If you look for a human explanation for Paul's success, there, are, there isn't one. People have, have said to me, I'm studying the Bible to see why Paul was so successful. And then, then he says this, I'll tell you why he, is, he was successful. He preached the truth. 
The truth is powerful. The truth is powerful. And God is powerful. It's the power of God. Those are what makes things tick. The surpassing greatness explains the transcendent might of superlative power from God on the souls of those who hear the truth. We preachers are clay pots at best. We have nothing to offer, no beauty or power. Paul knows that, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. In the end, it's okay that you're so weak and so afraid. I want to give you God's word, Paul said, so that your faith would rest in the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, he also said, neither is the one who plants anything or the one who waters anything, but God is everything. He causes the increase. You're all here today as believers because of what God has done for you, what Jesus Christ has done for you. That is so helpful to me to know that the people I really care about, and I sometimes I wonder, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to, you know, I feel like a chiropractor. I want to make some adjustments here. But the fact is, it's Christ. Can you, can you imagine if you, did, you made all the changes in people that you thought they should have, and then you, you, then you saw the, the product of your work, and you would be so incredibly disappointed. But we have a Savior who knows how to change people. And so uh, these sufferings that we're going through, this is a time of suffering. And some of you are in pain right now. But the product, the purpose of it is to produce something in the future that we're going to see, which is the glory of God. And that's why that, that we ourselves groan, because we feel that things are not the way they're supposed to be. In verse 26, he says the spirit himself groans. Now, there he's talking about the fact that it's true, you can't pray as you ought. You, you know, you, you can't. That's just a fact. And he says, but the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I would say that the groanings too deep for words, the reason he uses that expression, he's saying he is intimately involved in your life. He is emotionally involved in your life. He cares about you. He cares about what's going on in your life. And so when he intercedes for you, he's interceding with the expression of his own feelings about you. God does have feelings. You understand that, right? That's where you got them. The reason that you have feelings, the reason you have emotions is because God does, and he created you in his image. And so you're able to feel life, and the spirit feels life, and he cares about us, and he groans in intercession for us. And then it goes on to say, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is. Now that's either the father or the son. I've had arguments with my friends about this. It's either the father or the son that he's talking about who searches the hearts. It's said of both of them. The, true, the same is true, of course, of the Holy Spirit, but he's, what is he talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about the fact that the Father and the Son, they understand the intercession. They know the mind of the Spirit, and so they respond to his intercessions. Have you ever, thought, you ever wondered, who's praying for me? I wonder if anybody's praying for me. Sometimes we only think that if something really good happens, surprising, and we thought, wow, I wonder if somebody's praying for me. Well, let me tell you, yes, they are. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you, and the Father responds to his requests. 
And then the second session, section of this passage is in verses 22 through 25. We hope for what we do not see. Our hope is on what we don't see. Notice in verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth together until now. Do you get why the, the, that the creation itself groans? It's because the condition of the present creation right now, the creation right now, the condition that it's in is a result of what has happened by human beings on this earth. When Adam fell, it says, for all have sinned. That's, that's, it's called an aorist tense, and it means that everybody sinned at the same time. We sinned in this, our great, 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 great grandfather. When he sinned, we all sinned. And it says, for all have sinned, and then it says, and are continually falling short of the glory of God. And sometimes we're made very aware of that. I mean, there's sometimes we feel so bad about the fact that we still have made such little progress. I, I remember an expression this week that was ringing in my head. I thought it was Vance Havner that said this. It was, there, there'll be no peace and wars won't cease until he returns. But then I just couldn't figure out where, if that, it, then I just thought, no, I don't think that's him. And I looked it up and I found out it was his cousin, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Don't ever tell him I said that. He's in heaven right now. You probably wouldn't be bothered by it, but this is what he said. It's a song called When He Returns. Let me just read you this one little segment from it. He says, truth is an arrow, and the gate is narrow that it passes through. He unleashed his power at an unknown hour that no one knew. How long can I listen to the lies of prejudice? How long can I stay drunk on the fear out in the wilderness? Can I cast it aside, all this loyalty and pride? Will I ever learn there will be no peace and that the war, the war, singular, because he's talking about the war of man against God. He says, there will be no peace that the war won't cease until he returns. What a day that's going to be. I uh, heard the other day the, the Gaithers had Johnny Erickson on there, and she sang a song. By and by, we'll all understand it by and by. It was so moving, it was incredible. Then this other guy gets up, and he's got some kind of an affliction. I don't know what it is. He's had a stroke or something. And he sang, oh, I want to see him. And the whole group sang with him. It was, it was one of those moving things I've ever seen. This man was in such poor condition. He's obviously suffered something serious. And he's singing, oh, I want to see him. Look upon his face there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let, we'll lift our voice. That's, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting to be in his presence. And when we are in his presence, we're going to be absolutely changed. That's the amazing thing. When you see him, you'll be like him. Isn't that wonderful? There's a day coming like that. And so as they sang that, I just was overwhelmed by it that this poor guy, he could barely sing. He couldn't carry a tune. When he got done, he says to Bill Gaither, hey, Bill, I think you should have me back. I got another song. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could hear the heart of people who aren't able to tell you the condition of their heart and their relationship with the living God. Now, we can, and so we can sing those kind of songs. We can sing, oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. 
That's what we're longing for, isn't it? You know, it'd be great when that church building's finished, but that's nothing in comparison. If Jesus comes, well, it's something, Mitch. <laughs> but, but, you know, if, if Jesus came back before you finished that, wouldn't it be wonderful? If he just caught you up and all of a sudden you were just like Jesus? Yeah, you'd be in his presence. You'd be right in his presence. He's coming, and we're going to see him, and we're going to be we're going to be absolutely overwhelmed with his glorious presence. Um, this passage is so wonderful because it's describing for us the fact that it's it's okay that things are not the way they're supposed to be because God is at work. He's changing things. He actually is doing a work right now in our lives. And he is changing things. I know every once in a while, do you get like this, where every once in a while you get to thinking, man, i got to start doing something to change. I'm going to start getting up every morning and praying at 6.30 to 7, or maybe 6.30 to 6.35, something like that. And, uh, and we think we're going to go on this new crusade and really change ourselves. And then we get mad at ourselves because we can't even wake up in the morning to pray. But the wonderful thing is that God is at work. He really is at work in our lives. That's a, that's a wonderful truth. That the people that you love, God is, in, is at work in their lives. And even though you may not be able to see it, he is. He is at work. I read this by John Piper this morning. <laughs> he, this guy is such a... He can say things like nobody else can say them. He said, I find the atmosphere of my own century far too dense with man and too distant from the sweet sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God can do whatever he wants to do. God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, that would be a scary thing if you knew a person, a human being who could do anything they wanted to be because you know that their motives aren't always right. And sometimes the, the things that they want to do is not something that you want to see done. But we have the sweet sovereignty of God, and we can rest in that. He's a wonderful, wonderful Savior. I want you to turn, look at verse 28. This is a verse all of you know. Uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But I want you to know what follows right after that. He says, for, which is explanatory. He's explaining how this, how can this be true, that God causes all things? If I told you, would you please pick three things from your life that happened this past week that wasn't good? I'm sure you could. But this is what he says. He's explaining. He says, for whom he foreknew. You know what that means? It means loved. For those whom he loved beforehand, foreloved. If, if you have a King James Bible and you were to turn to Genesis 4, verse 1, it would say that Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she gave birth to a son. Now, you know that's more than knowing her, huh? There's something deeper there. In fact, I have a little chart I use in teaching theology proper where you can see that just hundreds of times the word know is translated love. God has loved us. And he says here, for those whom he foreloved, he also did predestinate. Please don't be afraid of that word. It's a wonderful word. It's a biblical word. It's, it's a word that simply means that God planned beforehand 
what he, how he was going to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And what's he wanting to accomplish here? Well, listen to what he says. For whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also did predest- he predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. How close are you? How close are you to being conformed to the image of Christ? I would say we're all a long ways off, wouldn't you? I almost had my wife come up and explain that I'm a long ways off. However, he says that God, first of all, foreknew you. That means he set his love upon you before time began. I know this is weird. Only God could do that. You couldn't do it. But he can. And he set his love upon us. And he says, everyone he set his love upon, he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? Why does he want us all conformed to the image of his son? Well, it tells you right here. It says that he might be, that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brethren. You get that? The father wants his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants to change a multitude of people so they're like Jesus and they are his siblings. Remember how that was? You know, Judy and I, we had two children. We had two real close together. They were 13 months apart, Shauna and Frankie. And then we went for 16 years. No child. We just assumed because we, you know, we just trusted God, whatever he wanted to do. So we assumed no more children. And then after 16 years, we found out that Judy was pregnant. And he blessed us with a third child. I couldn't make a wisecrack, you know, like he cursed us with a third child. But he blessed us with a third child. And I still remember the telephone call when Judy called me. And we had just come back from, I'd gone down, we had, our whole family had gone down to Southern California, I finished seminary at Talbot Seminary. And, and so we're just back and I'm just about ready to go to work for the church. And she calls me up and she says, guess what? I said, what? And she said, I'm pregnant. And we both just busted out laughing. We couldn't believe it. We just couldn't believe it. I told the church, this, I know you people are suspicious, but this baby when we announced that she was pregnant, I said, this baby is, was, a, was purposed in eternity past. I said, first of all, I said, this child was planned. And they all looked at me like, yeah, right. And I said, before the foundation of the world. See, God planned it. God planned it. And it was wonderful to have three children. And now I have ten grandchildren and I think four or five great-grandchildren. Well, what God wants is he wants there to be a multitude of siblings of Jesus through salvation in his work. He loves to see people come to faith in Christ and be born again and become a child of God. Adoption means that they've been brought into the family and set forth as one of his siblings. God loves that. He loves big families. And now he's got a gigantic family. You remember what happened in the church when it was born on the day of Pentecost? The church was born. And then within 300 years, that church had become the most predominant, the largest group in all of the Roman Empire. This This is why the emperor began to call 
the Roman Empire a Christian empire because the great majority of people were Christians. The gospel went out in power and people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says here that those whom he, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, that is, he planned how he was going to conform them in the image of Christ. Now, if you said to me, would you make up a plan for how I could be conformed to the image of Christ? I'd say, I don't have any idea. But God does. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it says, and whom he predestined, these he also called. That's part of his predestination, which is his plan, his map. You know you, how you take out a map and you draw a line where you're going to go to get back to New York City? And that's, that's what he was talking about. And he says right in the middle of it was him calling them to himself. Those whom he called, it says, wherever I'm at, those he, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. That means he's, he declared you righteous. He made you righteous in his eyes because he clothed you in Christ. And then he says this. It's crazy. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Look around the room. Is there any glorified person in here? I don't see any either. And yet he says here that everyone that he predestined and called and justified, he also glorified. And it's a past tense. It's a past tense verb. He says it already happened. Why is he doing that? Because he said it's so sure. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about the fact you're going to be glorified, which means being changed into the very image of Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. So he says these these five things. He says we were foreknown or foreloved. We were predestined. God laid out a plan for the way he was going to conform you into the image of his son. And he called you in time. He doesn't even mention the fact that you believed, because this is only about what God did. This is what God did. He foreknew, predestined, and called, and justified. But the fact that you were justified makes us know that you believed. You put your trust in him, and he justified you. He declared you righteous, and you're going to be with him forever. You're going to be in his family forever. You'll never be disowned. You'll never be taken out of this family because he wants his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. The word firstborn means a proto- it means that he's the chief one. He's the most important one, Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible actually says he's our elder brother. Now, we don't call him that because it sounds a little flaky, doesn't it, to call him your elder brother. My elder brother said, <laughs> but that's what the Bible calls him. He, we are in the same family. We have the same father. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us. You know, God has gone to such extent to work in your life in order to conform you into the image of Christ. For one thing, he's given you the Holy Spirit. Not just because you can, somebody can say, well, you got the Holy Spirit. It's, it's because the Holy Spirit is the mark that you're a member of the family of God. And the Spirit always produces evidences that he is in a person. You can see it in their character their character. He's changing your character. He's applying the gospel to your life today. Every day. He is applying his gospel, the work of Christ in our place. He's applying it to our lives. Aren't you glad of that? I am so glad of that. You know, there's times that you want to be... uh, 
I don't know, really down about your condition, you know, about your, your status and your spiritual growth. And you, you want to think, man, I'm a mess. Well, that's okay because we are broken. There's no doubt about it. And it shows up in our lives at times. But the wonderful thing is that he has a plan and a purpose, and he is conforming us into the image of Christ. And this is why Paul could say, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because he is actively engaged in your life. You may think that you are in control, but may I, may I break this to you? You're not in control. He's in control. He's going to do in your life exactly what he wants to do. And you may think, yeah, but I'm the one who sets the timetable. I'm the one who, I'm in control of my life. No, you're not. No, you're not. God's in control of your life. He's your heavenly father. And he loves you. There's times when you don't even love yourself. But he loves you. He has esteemed you greatly. He has made you to be a person who is one of those who is the, a family member with Jesus Christ. And God is your father. And so he is working in your life. So when you get to feeling bad and thinking like, man, everything is going wrong. Nothing's going like I planned it. Oh, praise the Lord. Isn't that a praise item? Things are not going the way you, you, you planned but they're going the way God planned. It's wonderful, isn't it? He knows what he's doing. Now, I'm not making light of troubles and, and trials and things that we go through and that we feel like, boy, this is really bad. I, why would God allow this? Well, what did he say in the first verse that we read in verse 18? He says, I reckon, which means I consider this to be true, that the sufferings of the present time are worthy are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that great? Man, it's you know, when we when we get together with each other and somebody starts telling us about how messed up they are and what a what a troubled life they're having, wouldn't it be something for us to say, well guess what? God's really doing a good work, isn't he? Because all we would think about is, well, if he was doing a good work, why wouldn't he straighten this mess out? Well, that's what he's doing. And the mess is you. <laughs> and he is actually, he's doing a wonderful work. He's conforming you into the image of Christ. That's what he's doing. And so that's why we can thank him for these days that we are in. We are in these days in which there is a lot of groaning going on. Uh, but the fact is, listen, listen to this if I can find the verse. Uh, in J John 10, 28 and 29, you all know this verse. This is probably a memory verse for some of you, but... It says, and I give eternal life to them. He's talking about his sheep. They hear my voice. They know my voice. And he says, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never. And he uses a double negative here. You know what a double negative is? If you use a double negative in English, it means just the opposite, doesn't it? It means a positive. But in Greek, it means it's, a, it's saying absolutely not. And they shall absolutely not. They shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. But then he doesn't stop there. He says in the next verse, verse 29, my father who has given them to me, my father who has given them to me, did you give him permission to give you to Jesus? He'd done it. It's his doing. 
He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now, when Plantinga wrote this book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, it was all about sin and how sin is not the way it's supposed to be. We were created to experience the wonders and the glory of obedience to the Father. But God knows how to bring that to pass. I think, I think most of us would say, well, they're a really, that person is a really good friend of mine, but I have no idea what it's going to be like to be around them in the future because they're going to be like Jesus. And I've never seen them like, just like that. But that's what he's doing. He's at work. He's doing this good work. And so we're going to be able to spend eternity with each other and seeing Christ's character being manifested by one another. Won't that be wonderful? What a day that's going to be. What a day that's going to be. And we have, all we have to do is to look for it. And so I want you to, to when you read this passage, to be, to be filled with praise and adoration of the living God. This is what he's doing for you. I, I, I love this part about the spirit because you have an infirmity and you don't know how to pray as you ought. I would, I would admit that immediately, absolutely. I don't know how to pray as I ought to pray. But he said the spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. So he knows what he's asking. He knows what he's expressing because of his love for you. And he wants to see you conformed to the image of Christ. So this isn't something you can do or I can do. It's something that God does. And he just wants us to rejoice over it. Thank you, Father, for taking this mess on. Thank you for doing this good work of conforming me into the image of Christ. Because I certainly couldn't do it. I can't even see how it's possible. But you are doing exactly that in my life. And I thank you for it. Let's pray. Our Father... We bow our hearts before you. We are humbled by this truth, this reality that you're at work in our lives. You're at work in the lives of all believers. You're doing a work, Father, that is going to astound us when we stand in your presence. So we pray that you would motivate us this week to be praising your name for what you are doing right now in our lives. You are up to something wonderful, and we are so grateful for it. We thank you. We thank you in this Thanksgiving season. We can give you thanks for the most wonderful thing in all of life, that you're conforming us into the image of Christ. And help us not to be surprised, Father, when we see the character of Jesus being worked out in our daily life. But help us to praise you, because we know it's you and not us. We know we're just clay pots. We know we haven't arrived. We know we are so broken in so many ways. And yet we thank you that we're in your hands. And you're able to do abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And so we praise you. And I pray that you would teach us to praise you over and over again. That we would be, um, we would be convinced that you're at work. We ask this in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.